With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. All right, Friday the 1st of March, time for our political panel this Friday morning. And I want to welcome a new guest, William McGimsey. Hi, William. Will, nice to have you. Yeah, it's nice to be here. How would you describe yourself? I don't want to, you know, use any wrong terms or anything. Um, <laughs> well, I tell people I'm a public policy professional. I spent most of my uh, career working uh, in government. Oh, in Wellington. insider. You've been on the inside. On the inside, but also on the outside in various advocacy organizations. And uh, I'm more involved on the advocacy side of things now. Okay. Nice to have you. Thanks for joining us. Get ready. All right. Olivia Pearson. Hi, Olivia. Oh, good morning, Paul and Will and Cameron. Good morning. Cameron. Yeah, Cam, oh, Cam, that's right. That's Hi, what I, I have to say, Cameron, because I like to remind him of his mother when he's getting a growling. Yeah. yeah. Cameron. Cameron. That's when they also use your second name as well. Yeah, I thought <laughs> True. Um, when you said Cameron, I thought, oh, it's someone else joining us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cam, good to see you. All right, um, let's just jump straight into it. Don't hold back. News Hub. Who wants to go first? I'm just trying, dabbing away the slight moisture. It's appeared in the corner. Oh, no, it's gone now. It's fine. That's it. Yeah. Uh, as someone who's been on the receiving end of numerous hit jobs from various different people at News Hub, I'm taking extreme satisfaction and delight at watching them go down. And it's a true case of you know, the, the, the journalists are all on Twitter all going, if anyone says go woke, go broke to me, I'm going to block them. Go well, woke, go broke. Ex that's exactly what happened. They, they've they been pushing uh, very niche points of view uh, and, you know, attacking people and doing it. It's not brave journalism what they've done and what they claim to be and, and being integrous and being strong. and It's rubbish. They, they produce a rubbish pro, uh, product and the customers weren't buying it anymore. Yeah. End of story. See you later. You know, go it's away. The, it's the free market in action, isn't it? Perfect. Yeah. And I'm pleased yeah. to see the government isn't even entertaining in even the remotest sense any sort of bailout or But, but why would they anyway? Well, well they, they always try. The, the media companies are the world's biggest bludgers. Yeah. In days gone by, they would have tried. Um, so it's so great to see these things fall to the free market and everyone's freaking out saying, oh, TV1 will be our only source of news now and they're government-funded. Everyone's saying that. Morons. Yeah, uh, but um, but it leaves a hole that can be filled. And um, Nature abhors a vacuum. Somebody that's that's will what happens it. when businesses fail. Well, it can't be that much of a vacuum if no one was watching it anyway. Here's the effect, right? Is it if if all of the staff at News Hub put their finger in a glass of water and then pulled the finger out, the hole that's left in the water from their finger is the impact of them. <laughs> so nothing then. I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm running. <laughs> one of the one of the most important developments I think in the last few years with Twitter uh, is the development of an alternative media sphere in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, so that's. And I think just uh, that's opened a sort of crack in the door that's allowed the sunlight to get through and, and show people, uh, give them a different point of view and real and, and help them to realise how biased the, the takes they're getting from the mainstream media really are. 
<clears throat> but now that we're down to one uh, major media um, provider, well, major TV, major TV. What made major RNZ TV still news pretty provider. major, isn't it? It raises important questions uh, for um, what we're going to do going forward uh, in New Zealand's uh, media market. So uh, the the free marketeers uh, are of the opinion that um, market competition is enough to uh, keep media honest in terms of the quality of the product they're providing and in terms of you know journalistic integrity and things like that. Uh, but there's another point of view that some people have uh, put forward, for example, uh, Chris Trotter, that there needs to be some sort of uh, regulatory uh, intervention to ensure um, things like objectivity and neutrality are upheld. So I think that's going to be the big uh, debate going forward uh, until we get to June and see what's happening at that point is whether we're going to move forward on this sort of free market basis or whether there's going to be some sort of a regulatory intervention. Do we want regulatory Do we want regulatory intervention? I mean, here we are. We're unregulated. We're doing all right. We're, we're, we're keeping our heads. We're being professional, you know. Yeah, and also, and also... It's not a free market, though. It's not a free TV market when, when the government issues licences for broadcasting. It's not a free market. Well, online where, it is. Well, yeah, but I'm saying that... The, the people who are hankering for regulation and requiring objectivity, who sets the rules for the objectivity? Well, that was going to be the next question. Right? Olivia, you, you were about to say something. Well, TV One News now being um, state-sponsored and the one source of truth is people are complaining about uh, and this being some kind of hit to democracy, what it actually tells them is they must learn the lesson of becoming proper journalists. As Lindsay said on your show this morning, Paul, um, now is the, it's like a command to rise. And after watching people fall uh, because they were basically too woke and nobody trusts them, now is the time for the fourth estate to rise. And that's, Winston would love that. And TV One have to do it too, state-sponsored or free market. We know they're not free market. Um, but they still have to rise and actually have integrity to journalistic principles and objectivity is one of those principles. And it's they might have lost. lost. They might, might have lost the plot completely, though. I had... Um... Todd Scott from NBR on, and he he said you got to sell TVNZ. It, it's it's a dog, but, um, but, but and no, it's got to stand on its own. Government right out of it completely. I I don't agree with this objectivity thing. I, I'm okay with media organisations being biased, right? I'm okay with that, mm. right? It's it's all right as long as you've got a, a number a of competing market. groups, so yeah, so you, people yeah, can exactly. find something that caters to them. Yeah, but, but we have had for a long time, I mean, and not just in uh, New Zealand, in multiple countries from probably the 1960s, uh, if not a monopoly in economic terms, a monopoly in terms of viewpoint mm. being put across. And I think, you know, that uh, social that. media and the development of this alternative media sphere has really um, shattered that monopoly on viewpoint. And what none of these media people have understood, you know, they, they're caterwauling to the select committee saying, no, democracy's at threat, rah, 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 all these tropes that they use to justify their position. And then they say, oh, we've been conducting media survey, media trust surveys and it keeps on dropping and how can we tell the audience they can trust us? Trust is earned, right? right. What, we what we learn during the pandemic, when all of these media organisations that are now dropping like flies... Uh, what we learned is that they were all sucking on the government's tit. 
to get money from the Public Interest Journalism Fund. And now that's dried up. It's gone. All of a sudden, they tip over. So if you've got a business model that requires subsidies, you haven't got a business. No. No. They got themselves into a death spiral a little bit, didn't they? Um, where they needed the government money to keep going, and but the government money came with strings. Uh, particularly yeah. And it would run out. And they corrupted yeah. themselves, and then they stood there and told us we were all stupid, and no, it's not corrupt at all, it's not a bribe, even though we're all saying the same thing in lockstep, every single one mm, of them. Mm, mm. I, I think there's something to be said about objective news, though, Cam, because I remember just from knowing Lindsay for so many years, he said that back in the heyday of broadcasting, when he was on air with... Um, the different shows he was on at that time. Paul, you would remember some of those shows as I well. Do. I was watching so, one the other day, actually, um, and he looked pretty sharp. Back yeah, the but the point was at that time you could deliver the news, which were events, world events, and you would never know when it was done straight down the middle. You would never know what side the broadcaster came down on. They were giving you the events, yeah, actually. Totally. And there's yeah, but something they're few to be and said far that. between now, though, aren't they? Yeah, because That used yeah. to be the way. You, yeah. Like, I never knew what Peter Williams' politics was when he was reading the news. No. I never knew, I, I never know what Barry Soper's politics are when he's reporting, um, you know, his stories. Um, but those but are the Do you know Susie Ferguson? Do you know Jenna Lynch's politics? Absolutely. And Susie Ferguson. misinformation for crying out loud. I mean, Red Radio is not called Red Radio for no reason. Yeah, but that but, but that um, ethos that you talked about there back in the day, Olivia, because I was at, in radio back then. Yeah, it was the same then too in radio. Mm. There, there, there's something to be said for reporting events that way, uh, but now it's all opinion journalism, and I'm I'm no different. I am, you know, whatever broadcasting I do, it is definitely with a heavy sway to my opinion, and I'm good at, uh, you know, I, I like being like that. Um, I'm not saying that I could be straight down the middle and completely objective. But when you read the, when you listen, if you turned on the television and you watched One News or any any news channel to give you world events, I would prefer to watch them give it to me um, objectively. And if I wanted opinion journalism, then I'll go to internet alternative mm. sources. If you remember back in 1990 when the first Gulf War started, everyone watched CNN then, right? That, that's how, Who was the guy was, from Invercargill? Don't know, but but we all watched CNN because they were at that point in time straight down. They were giving us Arnett. information, right? Peter yeah, Arnett. Peter Arnett. They gave us you know information as it came to hand. Same with the coverage of the Falklands War. Even though they were embedded journalists on the on the aircraft carriers and things like that, they were sitting there. I still remember that line. I counted them all out and I counted them all back. Right. That it was that was telling the story with facts. Sometime after 1990, it changed. Mm. And they became more, you know, it was more slanted. And and consequently they lost their audience. Because all of a sudden you're sitting there going, well, this isn't, hang on, I, I read about this three days ago on another news, on a website, and what they're telling me is the complete opposite of what I actually read. And it's like all the coverage of Trump, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. They just slanted everything to suit their worldview, which is incredibly left-wing, and we've got actually proof of that. We've got surveys of journalists that they self-reported where they sat. 
And it's so far left, it's not funny. There's only a very tiny percentage that are either centre-right or consider themselves to be right-wing. And so... A lot of of commentators have said... um, that there's been a sort of sea change in the journalism schools in the in the universities and the way they teach the profession. Yeah. Um, so it would be good to get. Uh, uh, you, you think that's the case, do you, Paul? Yes, I do. I think it's now into the third generation of this. If you you're think thinking of, of of journalists becoming tutors, we're, we're into multi multiple generation indoctrination now. And if you look, so, back so at, that it, guy who was having a go at the prime minister about who we interview on RCR is third generation brainwashed journalist. Who was that? Do we know who, who I, that I, was? I don't, maybe Cam knows the name. I, I don't know the name. Um, which one was that? The one who asked <laughs> that one? loaded question to um, oh, it's, it's that, it's to Luxon that, about uh, yeah, it's, that whoop, it's that whoopsie from stuff, um, Glenn McConnell. Yeah. The, okay, so there's your third <laughs> will <laughs> and answer to your question. That's what you get after. <laughs> Two generations of of tutoring that way in journalism yeah, school. I mean, and, and he attacked since about yeah. nineteen ninety, as you say. Yeah, well, the yeah, question so is, can, is: Is this a good thing? I think we all think here at no. least that it's a bad thing. And and if it is a bad thing, what can we do to sort of reverse the let uh, it fail the ethos among journalists? I think it, um, I got an opinion on this too. I think it's the way it's been sold because the commodification, commodifying whatever the word is, of these courses in university settings. You've had to sell bums on seats. Now, unless you get to PR and journalism, you're probably going to make a modest return. Yet your um, student loan is going to be reasonably hefty. So, a nice way of selling that is, you'll change the world. But, but this you're is the, needed. But this oh dear, is, that's this is where the problem is, though. Paul, this is where the ego and the whole, you know, so, yeah. being so secure in your but, ignorance comes. Yeah. But this into is play. where it all so I think started. I think they, it's part of the industrial educational complex. Yeah, but that's the problem because if you go and talk to Jock Anderson, for example, or um, some of the uh, longer in the tooth Herald journalists who, who aren't in, there any longer, nobody went to journalism school in the 60s and the 70s. Nobody did. No, you, it was you, all um, You got a on job, the job at the local newspaper and then cadet. you bubbled up through the system as a cadet. Exactly. You, you, you ran errands for the editor. You went and bought his cigarettes. You um, made sure his <laughs> beer was already poured so he could come. Right, all of these things that were what, what you did when you had a job for the first time. You know, you were a gopher. But they yep. learned how. They learned Dog's body. They learnt the craft. Yeah, but it was taken over by the, like I say, the educational industrial complex. Yeah. Made it a commodity in that case and and completely devalued it. I've seen some young journalists being torn down like you wouldn't believe by the old boys. But it was with a kind of respect. Yeah. You know, it it was so you don't make that mistake again. I remember once reading. Yeah, like getting an apprenticeship in any other trade. That's, yeah. that's how yeah. you did it. Very quickly, you... the rough edges come off. I remember um, ballsing up a news bulletin in Tauranga and the news sub running from the newsroom saying, don't you ever do that to my effing bulletin again. There was ownership in the quality of the product. Now it's, you know, we, we run on the BFD, a stuff up, stuff up of the day, and we have multiple choices you know, from the Herald website or the stuff web, we put them up every day because no there's lack, just no lack of yeah yeah, and, and they outsourced everything and it all went badly. You and know. I just can't get over with News Hub and Stuffed, how, and even the Herald, how many spelling mistakes are in yeah. there 
bulletins. They're just shocking. They, well, they, these people can't spell. But there's awful things that have come into the lexicon of, of, of stories. They talk about lawmakers. We never talk about lawmakers in news. That's an Americanism. It's definitely an Americanism. And fire right? trucks. Don't like that one. Yeah. It, fire engines. So, yeah. you know, okay. this is small stuff, but it's it it it, it matters. We, they don't speak or think like the vast majority of New Zealanders do, and that's what why their audience has disappeared. What do we call here, Cam? What, what is their proper designation to? I've got a word. It starts with F, but I can't say it on radio. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think we know where we're going on that. Let's uh, move on to next topic. And, uh, Will, I think you've got first uh, um, uh, talking on this. COVID inquiry reflecting on COVID response from a free speech perspective slash government policy created an Orwellian atmosphere that stifled dissenting voices and harmed a social cohesion. No kidding. <laughs> it relates It relates to the demise of the media too, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. So the Go Royal on. Commission of Inquiry into, COVID, into the COVID response is now calling for submissions, asking for people to share their story. Um, and the consultation is open until 24th of March. So I would encourage as many people as possible to submit to that. Um, so a lot of the focus has been on discussions around vaccine uh, efficacy and the public health justifications for a lot of the policies like mandates and lockdowns. Um, but you're right, I think a, an underappreciated part of it has been um, how the government's behaviour affected free speech. And it's not that they passed any particular law that banned free speech. There was an attempt to pass hate speech laws, hate speech laws at, at one stage. But, but um, the real problem is um, the use of soft power, so non-legislative methods right. that sort of uh, bullied, stigmatised, demonised people, uh, provided a negative incentive um, for sharing opinions that differed from the government's. Um, and that, yeah, aided and abetted by the media well, who took money to do it. Give us an example of of soft censorship. I'm just trying to think of big farmer. Well, you're calling people conspiracy theory. I mean, the biggest uh, one is misinformation and disinformation. Yeah, spreader. spreader. So the terms the terms misinformation and disinformation were sort of almost coined and came into prominence during the COVID campaign. Yeah, we used to call that just dissent. Yeah. yeah, it's just a different opinion. Uh, and so, I mean, the, the, what they're trying to do there is delegitimize different opinions. Right. So rather than providing uh, evidence and reason to defend uh, your position against people with different positions, it's it's more about delegitimizing them, calling them dangerous and harmful uh, so that you can uh, censor them and remove them from the marketplace of ideas so you don't have to face that competition. And a good Basically, example of that too was when Chris Hipkins uh, labelled the, um, you know, did two things. One is smeared Americold and said that COVID had come here on packets of frozen peas. Uh, and the other one where they demonised some poor worker at KFC, uh, as well as the three women who actually the legitimately yeah. travelled north and they described them as being involved with gangs and um, and uh, and being hookers. And illegally accessed. And illegally accessed, and they demonise them, and nobody ever covered what well, actually is this true. That no. the media also, all also lined up and went with it. There are also several cases of, um, you know, medical professionals uh, voicing opinions that differed from the government's take and getting in trouble with the uh, medical council. So Still facing are. threat. Threats of de that's right, threats of deregistration and things like to that. To say nothing of what they did with social media through big tech. Well, I know. I was on the receiving end of that. So 
I think we all were. I think we all, and I know Chantal I was, Baker was. Yeah, I was. Our Facebook feed was constantly um, blocked. Oh, no, you're sharing this. It's dangerous. You can't do that. And it's, we, received, we had massive hits via Facebook and Twitter before Elon Musk freed it. So was that soft power or hard power? Well, it was soft because it was all done with weasel words in the background. Weasel words, yeah. What happened to you, Will? Uh, well, several of my posts commenting on COVID policies uh, got censored, my, and my account was suspended for various lengths of time on more than one occasion. Just the usual. Yeah, so the, so it's it's reasonable to assume that the government or the prime minister's office more likely had a team of people, GCSB people, scraping social media continuously, right? Mm, that was part of the Christchurch call. Yeah, well, I mean, what we're seeing is um, revelations of. Uh, government involvement in uh, social media companies. And Elon Musk himself has talked a lot about this at Twitter. Uh, US government uh, security intelligence officials being involved with Twitter, um, thinking yeah, work, about ways working, to work on the payroll, right? On the payroll. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, so former security you know, officials are now being paid by Twitter, uh, directly engaged in censorship. So he fired a lot of those people. Um, but we can you probably all of assume... Them. We can probably assume a lot of this is still going on in uh, other um, platforms. Well, there's still revelations coming out of the collusion between the CIA, the FBI, uh, the Department of Homeland Security to silence dissent at Twitter, at Facebook, everywhere else. It's still coming out. There's even stories today on public, um, you know, on some of these guys that have ditched the mainstream media, set up their own things on Substack, like Matt Tobibi and... Uh, Michael Schellenberger and people like that, fine journalists. I, I don't agree with their political stance. I mean, they're all registered Democrats, but they're honest journalists and, and they've hung their shingle out, out there and stood up against this sort of, you know, military industrial complex that's also controlling um, with Big Pharma and everything else. Yeah. Um, so, so how do we explain Luxon keeping Jacinda on with this Christchurch call gig he must know that she is epicentre of, of all this activity. Well, it's how it's actually not about that, right? The, what people need to get get their heads around is her security is being paid for under the Christchurch call because she can't go anywhere in New Zealand without security. That's how much she's despised. Do you have someone with an RCR T-shirt on <laughs> having a go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's very telling. Well, I mean, we saw that. I mean, in the last, while she was still prime minister, in the last year or two of her prime, or last year of her prime ministership, at least, she couldn't go to schools without protests. No, she couldn't go anywhere. Good. And also, so much of that uh, hate directed at her come came, and rightly so, from Maori, didn't it? Mm. Which was devastating for a Labour minister, a Labour prime minister, because she yeah. was, you know, tried to. D they didn't worry the Maori caucus though. Olivia didn't seem mm. to ruffle their feathers. Um, no. uh, do you think um, with this inquiry coming up, there'd be a few uncomfortable night sleeps approaching for some people, wouldn't there? I don't know. I, I don't really trust inquiries. Anything the government's organising, doesn't matter what colour they oh. are, I have dis distinct distrust over. I think they, they, they get it. the submissions will be important because I think the submissions will dictate the scope of the inquiry. And for, for, I noticed that we got feedback after the last panel saying we all sounded so disappointed in this government. I am not disappointed in this government. 
I'm not disappointed. I'm disappointed on certain things like their stance on Ukraine um, for, for, for whatever the reasons they do that. But I, overall, uh, much of what they're doing is good. And the inquiry, I know that's a big one for you, Paul. Well, it's a big one for all of us, but yep. you've often voiced how, how much that means to you personally. It sure does. Yeah. Yeah. And the submissions will dictate the scope of the inquiry because they're going to learn from it. And so, you know, I, I think that's a good process that we're under and it'll be really interesting to see what comes of it. Okay. And of well, course well, the well, vaccine injured that are writing in and telling these stories, they're going to read all that. All the MPs, our parliaments will read all those stories. And it's about blimmin time they did. Yeah. Well, I you would think, hope that I that's don't the think case. they care. I don't think that, that especially the Labour and Green and to party Maori, I don't think they care. No, they won't. Sorry, Will, go. You, I'm just, you're right that the um, they've called for submissions on the scope of the inquiry. Yeah. And so hopefully they listen to those submissions. Yeah. Uh, but submissions are also open now on the inquiry itself, so they're asking for people to uh, uh, provide them with their stories about the things that happened. So yeah, you can you can provide your substantive um, story into the inquiry right now, and I, I would just encourage everyone to do that. And that, that guy Blakely reads it, does he? Yeah, and his and his crew. Whoever they are. Right. Okay. Well, he might not be on the inquiry. Well, I was going to say, do you think he'll be there? I think he's compromised. He is compromised. And, and that's many a people are putting, term. They're putting that, people are putting that, I mean, Peter Williams said on the show last week that he is, he, that's what he made his submission quite strongly about was that you cannot have Blakely going forward with this inquiry as one of the inquirers. Inquirists, yeah. Inquirists. Okay. Um, anything more to say about COVID? I think uh, Will and maybe Olivia, you had something to say about what's this COVID cartel? This is a well. So this this does actually feed into exactly what Will was speaking about about the Orwellianness of what we have been under with uh, media and the censorship of information. And the American journalist who I just adore is Lara Logan and um, she recently was invited to the roundtable titled Federal Health Agencies in the COVID Cartel What Are They Hiding? Um, that was the name given to the panel of experts proper experts not the fake ones that fake fact checkers use who spoke openly and seriously to discuss the COVID cartel since that clearly is a real thing that unfolded in all our countries in 2020 um, Lara Logan joined a panel of experts on, on Monday, led by Senator, and it was initiated by Senator Ron Johnson. Um, he's the Republican Senator of Wisconsin, um, outstanding man and a tenacious man, um, to discuss the COVID cartel covering the COVID-19 vaccines and the history of covering up the vaccine injuries, the corruption of medical research and federal health agencies, as well as the role of the World Health Organization. Johnson has uh, repeatedly tried and failed to gain more information on the adverse reactions to the COVID vaccines, but federal agencies have essentially given him the runaround. <laughs> no kidding. Mm. In announcing the forum, a press release said Johnson and a panel of experts will expose the truth about how the COVID cartel and federal health agencies, meaning and Big Pharma, Legacy Media, and Big Tech engaged in censorship and cover-ups. This discussion will also shine a light on the failures and the corruption of the global elite and their institutions. So they got Lara Logan as a 
person to give testimony, and she was an excellent person to have on there. Um, she spoke on the issue of censorship and propaganda, which, of course, is much wider than just the issues pertaining to COVID. Uh, and this is what makes it so Orwellian. She's an outstanding speaker. And for those who don't know Lara, she is one of the bravest women in America and has a long history as a CBS war correspondent and investigative journalist, um, a real one. She's nobody's shill, um, who paid as heavily as a woman possibly can pay for her work in the Middle East. Uh, she originally comes from the left, like Naomi Wolf, uh, but I've watched her over the years become uh, steadily red-pilled step-by-step after she was unceremoniously dumped by CBS. Mm. And her personal story is quite something to behold, and I advise people to look her up if they're not familiar with her. She she said to the roundtable, these are the worst times for the American media, and we live in the age of information warfare where propaganda is not simply a weapon but the entire battlefield. It kind of is. Yeah, it, yeah. We, can, we can relate to that. It is a moment where we, quoting Lara, it is a moment where we as journalists should stand together for the truth and for freedom. She said all this with alt, alt, um, alternative media giant Del Bigtree sitting right beside her, yep. and she brought up the hate dispensed at Tucker Carlson and the fact that he was accused of treason by many American journalists simply for interviewing Vladimir Putin without one single media institution speaking up to defend him. She said, this was not just an attack on one man. It was a betrayal of the most sacred principles of a free press. And my media colleagues know this to be true, no matter what they say. Um, She said, my feeling is that they no longer care or they lack the moral courage to be honest. Um, She went on to tell the room that, you know, she had been at the top of her journalistic game interviewing world leaders, some mass murderers and terrorists as she held people on both sides of the aisle accountable. She said, I've seen suffering. I've walked through the fires of hell on distant battlefields. I faced my own death at the hands of some 200 men in Egypt when I was gang raped and sodomized and beaten almost to death while on assignment for 60 minutes. Yeah, that's yet, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And yet for almost a decade, I have been targeted, falsely branded and accused of many things that I did not do. They've attacked my work my character, my sanity, and my marriage, and I'm not alone, for we are many. So she she sort of wound it up by saying, to those who wish to censor the idea of free speech in America and all over the world, media companies, institutions, and journalism schools have failed all of us. So there we go back to the journalism yep. schools. Mm, yep. And for too long, we have allowed nonprofit organizations to masquerade as nonpartisan media watchdogs when, in fact, they are little more than highly paid political propagandists and assassins whose entire reason for being is to crush anyone who stands in their way. We call it cancel culture, but in truth, it is a death sentence. Right. Um, I just got a little bit more to say. Uh, Lara went on under questioning to say how doctors, scientists, and now the vaccine injured are now at the mercy of these powerful taxpayer-funded NGOs with their cancel culture and censorship. She said it's it's how you murder a journalist without killing them. It's how you murder a scientist without killing them. It's how you murder a doctor without killing them. And she finished by saying it's how you murder the vaccine injured when they haven't died yet. 
It's how you finish them off and everyone else in their family. So in the name of preventing disinformation, they censor, silence, intimidate and punish. And that's exactly what they've just done to Jane Morgan of the dinner club in the Hawke's Bay. Mm. It's exactly the same thing. It was done in 2014 to me. It was, Cam. Yep, it was. And you're still standing. There were journalists that were involved in meetings where they were planning to increase the pressure on me to such a point that I'd kill myself. So they wanted to physically harm you. Yes. They wanted to. Driven by what, though? This is the thing. Uh, Driven by a dislike for how effective I was at putting out my messages. Yeah, but wanting to go that far. Bah, I mean, it's demented. I know two people who were in that meeting who told me about it, two people that I trust, because mm. they came forward. They didn't have to. They could have just stayed quiet, but they told me. Maybe we should flick to Jane and the dinner club, seems you mentioned it. And Well, um, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I know that you you did a lovely interview with her, Paul, and many people were very interested in that interview because she's got quite, she's got 9,000 followers on Twitter, and yeah. I suspect that's why they've gone after her. But, I mean, she goes by the name Dame Jane on Twitter, as her name, her handle, um, and she's a woman who was passionate about helping the Cyclone Gabriel survivors by starting the dinner club, yeah. where she, she cooks a beautiful weekly meal for Every anyone. Every Friday. Every Friday, uh, who who needed for, for anyone who needed one, along with friendship and support and yeah. community, many of these people still a year later are still living in caravans and tin sheds. She told me she tried to give it up, but they wouldn't let her. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> because either. They wanted I was... to gather. They wanted it was the gathering. I mean, the meal was but, great, but it was coming together. That she's she, been attacked she, for this book by a couple of people. There's one person who laid a complaint about her and said, this is the ridiculous thing. She posted a thing about, you know, remember at Waitangi Day, uh, Calvin Davis talked about white spiders, right? Yeah, that's right. right? It was his terminology, right? His terminology, he described Europeans as white spiders that were undermining the treaty and, and we need to crush the spiders. What Dame Jane did is posted on Twitter a little cartoon about spiders and how she likes she likes spiders and she doesn't want them crushed and she wants them to live and she puts them outside. Well, this little oik went onto the Facebook page of this book, of this uh, bookshop and said, "Oh, you're stocking this book," and she's been posting white supremacy um, things about spiders, right? So that she can compl- the, the person who complained completely turned the term of spiders around from what it was intended, which was an insult mm. by Calvin Davis to beat her up. And the bookshop owners um, said, oh, we're not going to stock your book. Now, I note that they stocked J.K. Rowling's book. I note that they've got the well, Communist I Manifesto think they went and in their bookshop. Further, they, look, they went and looked further afield at her other yeah. posts and, her, you know, the sort of like the But they the accused record. her of white supremacy and she uh, she has She's a Maori mother. Maori. Yeah. Yeah, um, but also, yes. I, I want to name the bookshop Wardini's Books. Yeah, Wardini's Books. Yeah, because yeah. you know they pulled it after some toxic little troublemaker that um, you know a little woke snitch heard them, 
you know, accused Jane of making anti-Maori, white supremacists, anti-trans posts on social media. So cancel culture rides again, and it's always the same old tropes, which they always get backwards anyway, as Cam just pointed out, because they're idiots. Um, but this is this is how they bring a good person down. And it's not just that, not that just that little weasel who snitched. Um, there's also a guy on Twitter, his name's Samuel Hudson. He goes by the handle of founder Sam, who's an unctuous little weasel from um, Otago University. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's laid complaints against her with the Charities Commission because she said, oh, look, all the funds for this goes to charity. And he's and he's been attacking her on Twitter. Saying, I know. Oh, you know, but, but that's what they that he would be a he will be a paid propagandist. Exactly what Lara Logan was talking about in her on that panel. You know, where they 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 are paid to take people down. I'm convinced of that. Oh, it's nasty. And I say shame on Wardini's books for being cowards and cowards. Well, here's a question. Here's a question. Will you might have an answer to this? What if they're listening? What would you say? What what would the advice? How does a this bookshop wind it back? Do you think? Well, I mean, what they're doing is right. I mean, it's cancel culture, isn't it? So, I mean, they've just got to uh, reverse what they're doing. I mean, I think it's warranted to for pressure to come onto them. Uh, and for, I mean, Jane's got a lot of allies on Twitter and elsewhere that she can call on to put pressure on them, and and hopefully um, that pressure can bear fruit, and uh, these people could be forced into reversing their course. I hope um, they do reverse well, the, 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 it. Well, what Cam was saying about the spider thing, I found quite interesting because I think this is a sort of pattern that repeats in other in other places. With the remember the OK uh, yeah. sign be, becoming a white supremacy symbol. Yeah, you know, that's many other examples. They, yeah. they seize on anything uh, to the point of ridiculousness, uh, and and that and a new sign of uh, white supremacy is born. And we see this pattern over and over. It's just it's completely ridiculous. And uh, white supremacy, which none of us would recognise. I wouldn't know what those signs are because we don't truck with that. It's just nonsense. But I just want to tell our audience that you can write to Waldini's books to voice your displeasure at their lack of fair play. Um, and their email is books at waldini.co.nz. W-A-R-D-I-N-I. That's how you spell it. .co.nz. Books at Waldini Books. Incoming. <laughs> yeah, ready. and tell them what you think about this decision of theirs because Jane deserves better treatment than this because she has seriously helped people. She was out well, there shoveling the thing. No debris can, and mud. No and one can tell the difference cooking. these days between real acts of physical, meaningful, human-loving help and, yeah. you know, a couple of – I mean – what WTF? I know. Well, everything that's... our side does is good and holy, and everything your side does, even if it's helping uh, people who are in trouble, is uh, bad and evil and no good. I mean, this is what last... makes this is what makes me so angry: is that you seriously get a, a good person who is deep down a real patriot, a real patriot um, that wants to help. Uh, New Zealanders, when they are really in need. I mean, that yeah. cyclone was devastating. To the point where they won't let her give it up. Yeah, but here's the thing, right? Yeah. It's a cookbook. Yeah, yeah that's no. the other thing. Right, it's got <laughs> recipes cookers, in it. Cookers, right? cookers, cookers. Exactly. Oh, no. But here's the thing. Just do a quick search on Wardini Books' website for, oh, I don't know, interesting titles like The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. Oh, yes, $15.99. The one man who has caused... <laughs> More misery, misery on earth than any other man. Mm, amazing. Yeah. Right? With his 
doctrine of communism that's infested the world and caused huge amounts of misery, and they sell that book, that's all right. The bookshop should get ahead of it quickly is my gut feeling because this could... um... Well, I've written to them and asked them to retract... Yeah. And to reinstate her book and explain that the woman is a patriot and that their their action is actually really shameful Apparently and unpatriotic. Sold a whole lot more books. She's yeah. good, excellent. Through the trade me. Oh, the Herald. The Herald used my tweet. Um, I think do they call them tweets anymore. I think it's a post on X um, supporting Dame Jane. You know what they're really saying is, oh look, this dreadful Cameron Slater supported her, so she must be bad. That, that, that's what they're trying to do. Oh, that's the other thing they they've got they've got all of J.K. Rowling's books. I would have thought if they were, you know, into book burning and banning that they should have a cleansing of of their. Uh, you know why their... they've got those? They can because they sell. Because they sell. That's right. They make them money, so they they people like that never stand on principle. I mean, if they re- really were anti anything being said about, you know the people that woke, uh, the trans or whatever, they would ban J.K. Rowling's books, but no, they're not going to let those profits go. Well, here's some other ones, right? There's the Jay's Gay, gay Agenda. Uh, we've got It's low-hanging thing. fruit they go after. Yeah. And that's, you know, people that, people like Jane who, you know, she uses that money to buy more food to keep that dinner club going so that people living in caravans and sheds have a nice home cooked meal on a Friday night. I mean, it's, I couldn't think of anything more I th- that displays goodness amongst our countrymen and women. You know, Wardini's, that's who you need to look up. Send them a message. Yeah, but be pleasant. Don't be overbearing and rude and, and act like the oiks. Um, be pleasant and point them out the, the serious uh, faults in their jumping to conclusions about about Jane Morgan, a wonderful Kiwi hero who should actually get um, uh, one of the Kiwi Bank, you know, New Zealand of the Year awards, certainly more deserving some of the others who have had it. Okay, let's go to Chris Bishop. So someone's saying here, I don't think Chris Bishop understands the slightest thing about economics. How did, no. how did that get in there? Well, because he, he's uh, announced uh, on Wednesday uh, that he wants to see homes cost just three to five times household income. What's wrong with that? Well, it might be an admirable thing to uh, achieve, but if you are going to do that, and let's just use Auckland for an example, right? And let's talk a nice round number, an average house in Auckland, say worth a million dollars, easily, almost anywhere in Auckland. And uh, you've bought that house a couple of years back and you saved up $200,000 and you went and got a loan for $800,000 from the bank and your household income is about $150,000. If we use his rule there that he wants to see houses cost just three to five times, and let's use the upper limit five times, five times 150000 it's 600000 650000 you are short in the value of your house now, because you've borrowed eight hundred thousand for a million dollar house, and Chris Bishop wants that to be six hundred and fifty thousand. So you're upside down on your mortgage, and guess what happens when that happens? The bank comes to you and says, "Well, these rules have changed now, and this house money. is now only worth six hundred and fifty thousand. You owe us currently eight hundred thousand. 
So you need to bring it back into line. So please contribute a minimum of 150000 to your mortgage, which you don't have. No. So what happens next? Well, the bank will then foreclose on you. And now you've got a glut in the market. And what happens when there's an oversupply against demand? Down she goes. Down she goes. It's a ever no. So any politician who says these things is he, wanting. He's saying ten to twenty years, though. I think it doesn't matter, right? Every the house prices in Auckland double every ten years. That's the rule. That's how mm. it works in Auckland. So what you're saying to mum and dads, whose single biggest asset is their house, is that we're going to give you a haircut. You're going to like it. You're going to go upside down on your mortgage, and it doesn't work. You, you you can't you can't drive the house prices down and collapse the market because that's where people's wealth is. And the alternative is to dramatically increase incomes. Well, that's a double-edged sword as well because then you have inflation that robs them anyway. There's a whole lot of things that make this not work. It's an it's political suicide. So what do you do? Well, you've got to change the environment that we're living in. You've got to change. You've got to get the government out of the way on uh, on being able to run businesses with as little interference from the government as possible. In fact, it's the opposite. If you've got a business with staff now, you've got health and safety rules. You've got HR rules. You've got um, ESG rules that are being foisted on you by councils, um, by government. If you supply anything to a government department or a local government uh, organisation, they'll turn around and say to you, well, what are your ESG rules? What are you going to do about um, diversity in your environment? What are you doing to hire more Maori and Pacifica? And so you've got a small company that's struggling and all of a sudden they're loading all of this stuff on top of you. So we've got to get rid of all of that and then mm. incomes can rise. Um, because they're not constrained by these artificial woke rubbish that's there. So the houses will become affordable through... Um, increased incomes. Increased incomes, yeah. I'll and tell you less. what I think, though. I think that all the conventional wisdom on the housing market is basically bunk. One of the first things you learn when you do study economics, which I've done, is you learn about the law of, of supply course. and demand, right? But yep. when it comes to housing, no one ever talks about demand. All they ever talk about is supply. We need more supply. We need more land. We need to make the building materials cheaper. We need to make the consent process better. No one ever talks about demand, which is the number of people we have, which is being driven by huge amounts of immigration. Yeah. And that, that's why we need to build so many houses. What is a housing crisis in principle? It sounds very simple, but a housing crisis is when you have too many people and not enough houses. And all yeah, we ever talk about is what all we ever talk about is what we do on the on the supply side and the building more houses side of it, and no one ever talks about what we do on the people side, which because we're bringing in too many people, we've got one of the highest. So, so we're doing it to ourselves, well. Will. We're just doing it to ourselves. We are doing it to ourselves. But but that's the problem, though, Will, because we all know this from supply and demand, right? It, there's a balance. There's always a balance between supply and demand, and you reach an equilibrium. It, it never happens in reality. There's always peaks and troughs and things like that. But what we've got is councils that have got people that don't understand supply and demand who want to, and, and we've had this in Auckland for decades, oh, no, we can't have any more subdivisions outside the rural-urban boundary, which is an artificial construct that a council officer came up with where they drew a circle or a squiggly line and said, that side we can have development, the other side we can't. 
And so Auckland has to grow and it's and, and it has to grow up. But you that means you have to remove housing to to grow up. So so you, <laughs> you get stuffed by these councils that have put artificial restrictions on supply. And then you wonder why house prices in Auckland double every 10 years. Because there's more people want to live in Auckland than anywhere else, and there's not enough houses. Yeah, but if we're pulling too many people in in the first place. Well, sure. Economist, economist Michael well. Riddell was on uh, RCR, I think it was a week or so ago, and making the argument that, you, you know, um, air politicians have pursued a sort of a big New Zealand policy for the past mm. couple of decades where we've tried to bring in uh, large numbers of people to build up the size of the domestic market. And our uh, labour productivity hasn't increased over that period, mm. as was expected. No. And his argument, um, called the Riddell hypothesis, which I think is something that needs to go mainstream, is that it's because New Zealand's comparative advantages are in things like the primary sector industries, our farming, our forestry. And immigrants and e don't want them. And even, even our tourism is based on uh, nature. And so those industries don't actually need a whole lot of people uh, working in them. And when you bring in more people, there's not enough jobs in those industries for those people. And so you have to spread sort of the uh, the gains from trade uh, and the, the export mm. receipts over a larger number of people when it reduces your average labour productivity. So he argues what we should be doing is pursuing a small New Zealand policy instead. And if we did that, we wouldn't have to build so many houses. So you'd, you'd solve small. that problem as well. Well, what, right. does exac what, what exactly, sorry, can you just make that crystal for me? What exactly does a small New Zealand policy mean on that? It means deliberately having a more restrictive immigration policy and bringing okay. in fewer people. Right. Because the more people, there's more GDP or, or higher GDP, but per capita goes down, right, income. People actually become a little bit poorer. There's the potential for that, isn't there? But yes, the big news in New Zealand. That's Michael, what Michael Riddell is saying. Because uh, some industries um, do well with more people, and particularly high concentrations of very skilled people. So you have these great big cities in New York, and, in America, and in Europe, where they, have, where they drive these uh, big industrial and service industry um, economies. Um, New Zealand, because it's so far away and because it has a relatively low population, is never going to be competitive in that area. And so, and trying to become competitive in that area is probably like a fool's errand. So, what he argues, and what I think I agree with, um, is that we should be pursuing a small New Zealand policy instead, and sticking to our strengths in the primary mm. sector. I tend to agree with that too. And and we we're not attracting the right type of immigrants. And, and what is the right type of immigrant? Well, well, it depends. But nobody is saying sitting overseas, you know, I want to immigrate to New Zealand and I think Invercargill or Palmerston North would be a fine place to live. They're just not. The, the, we don't well, actually, They need to do a better job of promoting themselves. Well, we, I mean, Palmerston North is called a city. Hamilton's <laughs> called a city. There's more people who live in Howick than live in Wellington. Well, what are you saying about Wellington then? Well, it's not a city. It's a joke. <laughs> Right, there's more people live in Sydney and in Melbourne individually than the whole of New Zealand. Right, we Auckland is a city, but it's a tiny city. It, it's and, and so we're trying to attract people to uh, you know come to New Zealand to add value to New Zealand. We don't have anything to offer them. I mean, You're making me but, feel small, Cam. But but who wants to live in Palmerston North? 
I mean, the only people who really live there is because they have to. Yeah, they're in the army. Well, I base. had to live there once. Exactly. You went to university, right? No, I didn't. No, no, I never went to university. Oh, right. Managed to escape that. No radio station. Right. It, it was probably mainly catering to the the people at Linton. Yeah, and just down the road, of course, I think um, Tom Scott, um, John Clark, and maybe even Lindsay Perigo mm. around Fielding Way or just across. So you know it. All from farming backgrounds. I don't know if you yeah. use or Uber a lot, counties. but I, I have been use, using Uber a lot, and I talk to the Uber drivers and say, oh, yeah, when did you get here? Oh, you know, a couple of years ago. What are you qualified as? Oh, I'm a doctor. Wow. Okay. Wow. You're driving. You know if you have an event in the back seat. Mm. <laughs> you're driving or an engineer. or the, These people are qualified. They've come to New Zealand, but they, they don't actually, they don't, they, I mean, they're driving people around. It must Uber. be disappointing for them, you'd think. You'd feel a bit undervalued, like you were that's oversold. The, that's the problem. We've New Zealanders are generally quite welcoming, but we aren't really. Dave because, Dobbin, welcome home. Well, yeah, but we're so insular. You know, people come from Fiji or India or or um, numerous other countries, and and we won't let them have jobs. Why did we let them in here in the first place? So I agree with the small New Zealand with a very targeted and small uh, amount of immigration that are in specific areas that we want to grow. All right. We're coming up um, close to time. A couple more issues. Maybe we can bundle these two together. Um, British Parliament and uh, Islamist threats and the latest designation by the New Zealand government involving Hamas. Who wants to go? I'll talk about the Hamas thing. Um, uh, on Thursday, Winston Peters and Christopher Luxon uh, released the emphatic advice that Chris Hipkins sought uh, prior to the election about whether de designating the political... It was always a distinction in New, in New Zealand. The rest of the world designated Hamas in its entirety as a terrorist uh, entity. New Zealand had a distinction where we just uh, designated their uh, military side of Hamas and we still um, allowed uh, Hamas as a political entity. Uh, as a political entity. Um, that has now changed as of Thursday. New Zealand now designates the entirety of Hamas as a terrorist entity. That makes um, quite a few uh, things possible. It means that for all of those... Um, people out there protesting wearing their black and white tea towels, they can still do that. But if they fly the green Hamas flag or wear the green Hamas bandana, um, that's now illegal. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Well, we've got many, many organisations designated as uh, terrorist entities. Uh, Jacinda Ardern even um, designated an individual as a terrorist entity in, in Brenton, Tarrant, uh, which is Perfectly okay. He was a terrorist. Um, there's plenty of other uh, organisations out there that are designated terrorist uh, entities, like ISIS. So if you're marching in the street and flying an ISIS flag, you you know you're um, supporting terrorism. If you're flying the green Hamas flag, you're now supporting terrorism. There is no distinction between the political side of that organisation and the military side. It's going to yeah. get awkward. Well, yeah. it's, well, not as awkward as um, having your politicians threatened by Islamists, Islamists, mm. I should say, mm. as what's been happening in Britain after the debacle 
Um, in Parliament a week ago, where 70 MPs or 60 MPs walked out, the Conservatives and the Scottish National Party. I could talk to that, but it's quite a, a detailed process. But the upshot was that the backdrop to all of that was the constant pro-Palestinian protests, some of whom um, were beaming stop the genocide slogans onto Big Ben, which is illegal. Remember in um, the Brexit debates, somebody did that and they were immediately arrested. Whereas this time the police didn't want to go near those groups. And Suella Braverman, um, the former Home Secretary, said that the in a column that the MI5 caseload consists of 75% Islamic terrorist threats, and that's with 5 million Muslims and a British population of 67 million. Um, so you've got three female MPs that are now under close protection because of threats to their security. Um, since the attack by terrorist group Hamas in October, conservative Tobis, Tobias Elwood had his privacy invaded when protesters began singing pro-Houthi chants outside his home this month. Um, you've got Labour MP Annalise Dodds, who's facing campaigners in Oxford, who screamed in her face about her party's position on the war on Gaza. And let's not forget that Sir David Ames, a Conservative MP, was murdered in 2021 mm. by a Muslim fanatic who was a sympathiser with ISIS. In a church. So, in a, yeah, in a church on one of his um, constituent meetings. And so Suella Braverman's point, too, is that a lot of these um, pro-Palestinian pro protests that are going on all over the UK and was when they were doing that Gaza vote in Parliament – have Hamas connections because Hamas have networks right through the UK. Yeah, this is, I mean it's problematic. And, it's problematic sorry. for democracy, isn't it? You can't you can't have a democracy if people aren't able to exercise or MPs aren't able to exercise their uh, voting without coming under threat. It sort of um, it warps the whole uh, decision making process. It totally does. But that's, the, pro that's the problem, though, with with immigration from countries that are anti democratic, that are non democratic. We've imported in the UK in particular. They've imported literally millions of of people that have no concept as to what democracy is, and in fact, come from countries where democracy doesn't even exist. And we've it, done the same thing here, and albeit on a smaller um, scale. Yeah. And so they're incompatible with Western liberal democracy. They are but, literally incompatible with but our society. But they know how. They notice. They know how to use our system against us, and that's what they're doing in Britain. And it was also part of Suella's point was how the you know free speech, for example, free speech is not a license to preach jihad in mosques or scream it and chant it on the London Bridge. Free speech does not allow that. So if there are constraints around free speech for crying for genocide, you must, the police must crack down on that. We, nobody in New Zealand uses, apart from Chloe Schwarbrick, when she chants from the river to the sea, what, Palestine what, what will be free, flags, uses though, it in that being, despicable way. What about not being able to, you know, present a flag? Really? We'll, we'll fly the we'll Palestinian flag, no problem. I have no issue with flying the Palestinian flag. Right, it's, it's not just, even a. It's just a flag. No, no but, but if you go and it, fly the Nazi flag, how far will you get? Well, well, well someone uh, shuts you down. Well, okay, that's the risk you take. But we want um, to. We want to. I, I think we want to try and preserve a very high standard of what's allowable in terms of mm -hmm. free speech. By all means, frown on it, but it should be uh, legal by law. Free speech scholars talk about this thing called the, the heckler's veto or the thug's veto, which yeah, is yeah. the idea of you know. People are uh, allowed to speak legally. However, uh, 
they're not practically able to because they get shouted down or they're denied a platform. Um, you know, no venues will host them, that sort of thing. Yeah. And what's going on in Britain with this sort of stuff? It's like um, the thugs veto, but at, the, at a level that it's a threat to democracy because yeah. <laughs> you can no longer a threat to exercise the, uh, the, the voting mechanism in the parliamentary chamber. No, because that's what that's what the the whole debacle was in the parliament is that they were they were made, the speaker allowed amendments to the motion that was being voted upon, which was a ceasefire in Gaza brought by the Scottish National Party, but Labour had to amend the wording because they were answerable to Muslim constituents and their constituencies that demanded a ceasefire. So they were trying to get the wording to be instead of being a pause, to be a humanitarian ceasefire, which is quite different. And the Labour MPs felt very pressured by that, and that's because they're all under this hideous um, uh, threats to their lives from aspects of their constituency, which just cannot stand, that cannot stand in British politics. Well, Cam's point was a good one, I think. Prior to the politically correct era, countries um, used to identify where they wanted their immigrant intake to come from based on things like whether the values were compatible. And it's just uh, very difficult to do that now that um, politically correct uh, political norms have made it sort of uh, racist. Uh, And so the the people making the public policy and the government just are unable to go there. Um, But really, that's the sort of thing that we need to do if we want to ensure uh, our democracy and our social cohesion. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that if you flood the zone... You're going to have all sorts of problems, man. Yeah, absolutely. But then you've got political parties who are opportunistic and they see that as a, a voting block. Look at the border in the US. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the people have written books. Voters there. People have written books about it. The, the emerging uh, Democratic majority, I forget who wrote that, but that's the name of the book. Um, so people are assembling, uh, left-wing parties are assembling coalitions of the fringes in a lot of Western countries as a deliberate political strategy to... Uh, take power from the, the traditional demographic majorities in those countries. And immigration just allows them to uh, bolster their um, coalitions of the fringes in order to make that strategy come to fruition. But it's not really in the interests of the the majority of people in the host nation, no is it? No way. Look, we're no. up against time. Um, uh, we've got one more topic on the uh, on on the list. If we go quick, maybe we can get to more sub- substantive part of it next week. But I know, Cam... You're a gun guy. Do you want to make a quick comment about the gun law changes that are coming? Yeah, and there's a whole lot of people that are upset that the ACT Party is honouring its election promise to rewrite the Arms Act. And, you know, it does, it, it should be rewritten. It's been amended since 1983. It's been amended so many times that it's actually become a, uh, not fit for purpose. Um, you know, you've got ridiculous designations. Uh, you know, for example, uh you know, they said that they banned all of these firearms, uh, you know, took all the guns off the street. Uh, they then designated them as prohibited weapons. Now, anyone who knows uh, English uh, pretty well knows what prohibited means. But guess what? You can actually own prohibited firearms. I, I should know. I've got several of them. I've got the licenses to do that. And so they're not prohibited at all. Um, so the law, as it's been adjusted and and also, the law is is not just the Act, the 1983 Arms Act that's been amended. There's a plethora of uh, orders in council where Cabinet has made decisions based on recommendations from the police uh, 
that are supposed to be codified in law but never have. And so there's a whole lot that are sitting there in orders in council as regulations, um, which are law, but they're not actually codified into a law. Um, and so you've got a whole lot of things that are working against uh, sensible uh, gun legislation. Yeah, you know, we had a really good system, and uh, we had a, a, a single person, an individual, an Australian who had been here for five minutes, and the police. Uh, actually shot his didn't. foot. Shot his foot. Yeah, but the police actually didn't follow the law. They they didn't follow the regulations in granting him his firearms license. We had a royal commission that absolutely excoriated the police for for their uh, you know massive miss. But the police actually turned it around, used it as an example to go gun grabbing and have now actually demonised and criminalised a whole lot of people. And, you know, my interactions with the Firearms Authority are, you know, are not good. Uh, they treat every firearms owner as though they're a potential criminal, when in actual fact we've been vetted by police, we've done all of the requirements, we've got safes, we've got all of the security associated with it. Meanwhile, the criminals never handed in any guns, have still got all their guns. The police keep on... Uh, uh, you know, getting them in raids, and they find out that the serial numbers are all filed off. So their great thing was to bring in a gun register to have serial numbers, and this is going to stop crime. Well, an angle grinder fixes that in five seconds. And and no logic has ever been applied to it. So I'm really pleased to see that Nicole McKee is honouring a, a pledge that they're going to rewrite in its entirety, and I happen to have seen a draft of the bill um, written by an expert in firearms law, um, that will make things sensible. And as part of that, they're going to say, well, if you're a member of a gun club and you compete in competitions regularly and you do a few certain things with security and other things, then, yes, you can have semi-automatic firearms to compete in those competitions. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think it's sensible and it's rational and it's not – it's undoing a whole lot of knee-jerk reactions – that Ardern did so that she could garner a whole lot of world praise, particularly in America, where they, you know, there was a whole bunch of left wingers and Democrats were saying, "See, you can ban guns." Yeah, yeah, and I, I see that. I see what Jacinda did as just a, an attempt to disarm the population, good yeah. people. And then you ask very it, you why? Why would you want to do that? Yeah. So we'll let, the, we'll let the crooks out of prison, and we'll let maybe even some of the mental patients out of the asylums, but we'll crack down hard on the legal gun owners. Who aren't exactly. Doing That's exactly what they did. Um, you know, I, we had at Antique Arms, we had Mike McElwraith from the Firearms Safety Authority come along, and he just told us outright lies to our face. And, and he made ridiculous statements. Like, here's an example. Right? We, we're a, a room full of subject matter experts, right? Museums contact us to see if we've got things for displays or that we can provide some information on a firearm that they've been given, right? So we're the experts. And he's standing there saying to us, um, well, you need to have a, a serial number on every firearm that you own. Somebody put their hand up and said, uh, well, I've got a whole lot of antique firearms that are more than 200 years old. Mm. Uh, serial numbers didn't actually start to come into existence till about 1895. Three and even then it was models. about... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right, and he's, and you know what this fool said? He said, "Oh well, what you should do then is select a number, the largest number, largest visible number on the firearm, and use that." 
And we all laughed. And he said, why are you all laughing? I said, well, I'll give you an example, Mike. I've got um, 10 Martini Henrys. And the largest uh, visible number on the side of a Martini Henry is the year it was manufactured. And so I will have six Martini Henrys registered with a serial number 1887. Yeah. Oh, dear. (laughs) All right. Well, um, (laughs) how do you react to that? Well, he came sure. and talked to me afterwards. Um, he said, I don't, don't like your tone. I said, well, I don't like yours. You oh, sound like, you're, you sound like you're threatening me. Mm. He says, well, it's people with an attitude like you that give gun owners a bad name. And it says people like you that give the police a bad name. No wonder we don't trust you. Oh, and he got all postured and, and angry and everything. I said, look, mate, when the firearms laws change and firearm safety authority is removed from the police and given to someone who's sensible – to, to monitor it like, I don't know, the Department of Internal Affairs. Just remember when that happened that it was me who told you it was going to happen. Ooh, ouch. Okay, that's our political panel for the first day of March, March 1st, uh, here at RCR Friday morning. I want to thank William McGimsey. Thanks for coming in, Will, and nice to have you on the panel. Um, public policy professional, lobbyist, social media influencer, ec- economist. Boy. I feel He's overqualified for the role. Quite, yeah, I feel very underqualified. <laughs> it was really good um, to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. Olivia, great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And Cam, as always. Thank you, Paul. Always love being on your show. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate.